Go to 1 Corinthians 6. Um, 1 Corinthians is the seventh book in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible and you have a phone, don't have a Bible app, you can just Google it. You can Google 1 Corinthians 6. It'll pop up. Um, you'd be shocked at the amount of times I Google Bible verses. Okay, um, as we get there, I would like uh, to have a moment of realness and accountability in the young adult ministry, okay? Who here, upon having some symptoms, has ever gone to WebMD and looked them up? Okay? All right, great. Who here has then been like, oh my gosh, I'm, I have a brain aneurysm, you know? Okay? Um, that happened to me once, for real. But there, there are two very uh, not helpful things about doing that. First is that if you're doing that, you're probably not a physician, so you shouldn't be diagnosing anyone, which my wife has told me many times. Second thing, though, about that is that symptoms are tricky. Uh, sometimes the same disease uh, has different symptoms in different people. Uh, I mean, me, me and Sarah just both just got a cold probably from our daughter, and Sarah felt terrible for 24 hours and feels great now, and I've had this for like a week, you know? Uh, some, some of you guys notice, like with your roommate, okay? You get the same sickness, you know who it came from, you, you're angry at them, okay? But one of you's got like the head cold and one of you's coughing. We, the same disease can cause different symptoms. Um, and we're in this point in 1 Corinthians where Paul is about to just start. It's like every, every chapter he changes subjects. And it's really tempting to think that everything he's talking about is totally unrelated. Um, but everything he's been dealing with are symptoms of the same disease. Uh, so far in 1 Corinthians we've seen uh, there are divisions in the church. There are people in the church arguing with each other. Um, there, uh, last week in 1 Corinthians 5, in a tough passage, we saw that the church had failed to discipline a member that was living in gross sin. And this week, the Corinthians are taking each other to court. They are suing each other. And those all sound very unrelated, but um, they are just symptoms of the same disease, of not understanding what the church is, not understanding what the gospel of Jesus Christ means for the daily life of the church. The Corinthians had despised the authority of the church. Um, and so, and that disease is something we might share, uh, just forgetting what the gospel means for how we do church life, and particularly how we handle conflict. So here, uh, here 1 Corinthians 6, I'll read through <coughs> verse 11. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers? Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 
Let's pray. Lord, this morning, um, we just pray that you would bring uh, a sense of how big what Jesus has done for us is and how that, um, and just how that affects how we treat each other and how we deal with our disputes and how we see ourselves. I pray you just come and give us wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we approach this passage that deals with some conflict, uh, I want you to try to imagine yourself in a couple of the following situations. So let's pretend you just moved to Charleston, uh, you got involved with East Cooper, and you're looking for a job, and somebody in the church offers to employ you in your, in your, in your, uh, in your field. Boom, great. You get this wonderful compensation package, you sign a contract, things are looking awesome. And then a week into the job, a week into the job, <laughs> I don't know why my wife is causing disruption. I'm used to it because I did middle school back in that, but I don't know, I don't know what she's doing. Okay, um, anyways, a week into your job, you are starting to get convinced that your boss is cheating you out of money. Your Christian boss, who's a member of East Cooper, is cheating you out of money. You're not getting paid what he told you you get paid. And you go to him, and you try to reason with him, and he's like, you've been working for a month, and you're complaining about money already. No, do your job. All right, what do you do? Or let's say uh, you find the one here at East Cooper. Uh, let's just say someone who's good looking and they love Jesus. You know, go for it, okay? Um, and you want to date them, and uh, they like you back. Things could not be better, except their parents, who are ECBC members, uh, live in town and they do not approve. They don't have any good reasons for not approving. You've appealed to them, and they just said, no, you're just not the one for my son or daughter. What do you do? Um, or let's say, finally, the previous situation works out. You marry the one or whatever. Okay, you have kids. Put them in PCA, which is the church's school, all right? And another ECBC family's son bullies the mess out of yours. And you go to the school administrators, and you go, and they don't do anything about it. What do you do? And now, uh, you might think I'm just making things up, but every single one of those things has happened at East Cooper in the last few years. Um, conflict with, uh, with other believers, um, not, not just relational angst, okay, uh, but like some serious what in the world is this person doing kind of conflict with other believers is inevitable. Um, you might have been here for a month and you're like, well, I haven't had any conflict yet. Just be here for a few years, okay? Um, <laughs> conflict among believers is inevitable. And what is, it, what is it not important is if it happens, but when it happens, what you do about it. And I know some of you were thinking, um, well, I'd quit the job. I date the girl anyways, you know, I don't know about the kids, right? Uh, and that's very American of you and very millennial, but have you ever thought, uh, have, you, have you ever thought, <clears throat> uh, have you ever thought of the church, that God has given the church, your local church, the authority in some of those conflicts? That in fact, the way you deal with conflicts with a believer in the local body of belief, in the local body, is, is completely different than how you deal with conflict in the world. There's a different way you go about it because of what the church is. Um, God has spoken about the church, and he's spoken about who believers in Jesus are. He's even said things like in this passage that believers are the future judges and rulers of the universe because they're one with Jesus. And that, that, that kind of gospel uh, changes. It has a big impact on how we deal with people we disagree with. So let's, uh, let's see what Paul says. So in, uh, in verse 1, okay, he lays out the situation. He says, 
When one of you has a grievance against another, a dispute, something probably significant in worldly matters, okay, um, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? So uh, Corinthian society, the Roman legal system was different than ours, but it was similar in the fact that you could sue anybody for any reason you wanted to, okay? Uh, The number of lawsuits in America are insane. I think uh, legal fees are, I think, I think it was 8% of America's gross domestic product. Just think about that, okay? It's crazy, right? Uh, But similar to our culture in Corinth, if someone, you know, stepped on your foot, you could try to sue them. And what was happening in the Corinthians is they were taking, they had disputes, they were arguing, they were very uh, argumentative people. And um, when they couldn't get their way, they would take their believer, their fellow church member, uh, to court before a pagan judge and try to win. Um, and Paul says that that is a scandalous thing. Someone, they're daring to do that. Um, and now I would say, uh, you guys are like, well, lucky me, I'm not doing that right now. Hopefully you're not. If you are, we can talk later, okay? But um, my guess is there's not anybody in here who's currently involved in a lawsuit with an ECBC member. But notice what we do have, okay? Uh, we have unresolved conflict handled in an unbiblical way. And I bet we have a lot of that in this room, actually. Unresolved conflict among believers handled in an unbiblical way. Um, And I think uh, just most Americans deal with conflict in one or two ways, fight or flight. I think that's like a, I think a scientist described how animals respond to danger, fight or flight. I think most of us respond to conflict that way. We either fight to win, either by, you know, gossiping, manipulating, or yelling, or whatever, or we, we flee, we run away. We stop talking to that person. We don't associate ourselves with them. We don't want people to bring us down, right? Um, and, that's how, that's how, and that's how America will tell you to handle your conflicts. Don't mess with people who are going to bring you down. Or do whatever you can to win. And, and Paul says this tendency in us to handle our conflicts unbiblically is complete and foolish ignorance. And he does so by asking the Corinthians, Uh, I don't know if you noticed this, but this passage, uh, in eight verses, the first eight verses, you have eight rhetorical questions. And a rhetorical question is simply a question that has an obvious answer. It's asked just for effect. Um, And I just want to, this is a sidebar, but I just want you to see how cool the scriptures are. Um, These questions, eight rhetorical questions asked in order, in a rapid fashion. I tried to get this across when I was reading it. Um, This sounds a lot like a lawyer cross-examining a witness. In fact, uh, there's this term in legal courts called badgering the witness. It's when, uh, uh, it's, it's not legal, you're not, you're not allowed to do this, but an attorney uh, sometimes will ask a witness a series of emotional questions or insulting questions to elicit a response. It's called badgering the witness. And it looks a lot like Paul's doing that here. That's just cool, guys. I hope you guys, um, the Bible is just so cool. And I, also, uh, if, come to Connect and learn about it. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna study passages like this and Connect and think about it. So anyways, but back to the text, okay? Um, Paul is going to law against the Corinthians about this. He is, um, he is getting in their face about this. Um, and here's, here's, what he, uh, here's what he says to them. Uh, verse 2, he would have taught this to them when he was there. This is not new information in verse 2, okay? Uh, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? In verse 3, do you not know that we, God's people, are to judge angels? Now, again, uh, some of, I was talking to Sarah about this passage last night, and she's like, what? 
so it's not something you hear a lot, uh, but it's actually uh, several places in the New Testament talk about this. Uh, Matthew 19, 28. Uh, Peter comes to Jesus, tells him, we've left everything for you. What, what's going to happen to us? And Jesus says to him, Matthew 19, 28, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Revelation 2.26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Let's just pause for a second and just consider, um, just consider the, the power of the gospel here. So the gospel, uh, the message of the Bible is the news all right, that you and I, that we as people, we, are, we have sinned and rebelled against God. God is our Lord and our maker. All right, and we've, we've broken his law. We've rebelled against him. We, we deserve his judgment. And, and God sent his son, Jesus, to live a perfect life and die a sin-bearing death. And anybody who, who rests their life on that, who embraces him, and who turns away from their old life of sin, they can be saved. They can be freed from God's wrath. They can go to heaven. And this morning, man, if, if, if you're not a believer, you can trust in this morning. That can happen to you today. You can be freed from God's wrath. But not just that. We, a lot of times we stop here with the gospel. You guys, you guys are like, okay, I know all, most of y'all are like, I know everything Lindsay said. But we stop there. We stop with forgiven and going to heaven. The scriptures say you don't just get forgiven and go to heaven. You become, out of your relationship with Jesus, because you're in him, you become a future ruler and judge of the universe. Just chew on that for a second. Now, everybody here, uh, we, all, uh, we all love authority and responsibility that we can handle. You know, we don't, some of us don't like responsibility that we know we can't handle, but, but responsibility and authority that we know we can handle, that we have the ability to do, we, lo- we love that. It's part of human nature. Sometimes it comes off in sinful ways, okay? But it's part of human nature. And, and there's a day coming when Jesus raises believers from the dead that they will be given new, perfect bodies, perfect wisdom, and given responsibility to judge the nations. Um, and if you're not a believer, I'd encourage you, that can be yours the gospel takes people who are going to judgment, to being judged by God, and it makes them people who participate in God's judgment, which is just, let that blow your mind for a second. And if you're a believer, just know, man, there's a day, even if you are the low man on the totem pole at your job, or no one listens to you when you speak today, there's a day coming, if you're faithful to Jesus, where you will have authority over the nations. And this uh, cool and wonderful news um, it's something we can just chew on and be encouraged by. Um, but here's Paul's point. If that's the truth, if, if God has said because of the gospel that believers are going to judge the world, then surely they can figure out Bob and Susie's conflict, right? Like, sh- surely, surely God's given a degree of that in this life. Surely there's some wisdom in the body of Christ to help you deal with your conflicts. Um, Look at what he says in verse, uh, the end of verse 2. And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Um, the Corinthians, look what he says in verse 4. If you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? You could really translate that, those who are despised in the church. Guys, it, here's the point, okay? If God has made believers people who are one day going to judge the universe, then today... They have enough wisdom to deal with your conflicts. The church is the place where you deal with your conflicts with the believers. 
Um, and I'll just connect this to some other, uh, some other things in the scriptures. But don't take your conflicts with believers outside of the body. Okay? Don't ever go to law, t- take a believer to court, all right? even if they're acting like an unbeliever. A lot of times when our believing uh, people we, who are believers are in conflict with act like unbelievers, we assume the rules don't apply. But I'll say, here's a process God lays out in the scriptures. Okay? It's from Matthew 18 and other places. First thing you do when you're in conflict with someone, humbly confess your own sin. 99.9% of conflict, you had a part. Even the parts like this, even if the conflict's this and the part, your part is this, humbly confess that. Go to that person, seek reconciliation with them, try to work it out. And if you can't, go to the church. Not, not just the pastor or the elders, okay? This is the whole body here. There is wisdom in the body of Christ. But what if it doesn't work, okay? What if uh, they're still intractable? They won't be convinced. They're not listening to people in the church. Look at verse 7. This is the second half of verse 7. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Let this blow your mind for a second. The scriptures say that it is always better to suffer than to sin. It's always better to be wronged than to wrong someone else. Um, Just think about all the times you've heard of horror stories of church conflict or of people you know in your workplace who've rejected Jesus and their excuse is that the church I grew up in really destroyed my family and I over something stupid. Um, think, about, uh, think about just how, how, how much the world rejoices when churches split. You know, like There's so much shame brought on the name of Jesus through conflict that's not resolved. And think about your life, man. I, uh, I forget who said this, but someone said, if you speak when you're angry... It will be the best speech you ever regret. Um, and you guys see that. Man, when you, when you fight to win, man, even if you do win, man, it is so bad for your soul. You are never further away from Jesus than when, when you, were in, you were hating another Christian. Even if you're a believer, there's never a point where you're further away from them than when you're hating and acting poorly towards another Christian. Conflict hurts you, even if you win. So the scriptures say, man, it is better to lose the battle with your believer and win the war for your soul, right? It's better, it's better to suffer wrong after you've gone through the process, right? It's better just to suffer wrong than to sin. So that is how Paul would have us deal uh, with our conflicts in the church. Um, but there's one more question that he asked them, a very, uh, a very scary question that is meant to wake them up. It's verse, uh, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. That The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, there are a couple parts of this verse, uh, or this passage that follows. The first is the question, and then verse 10 is the description of who the unrighteous are, and verse 11 is God's provision in Christ. So we'll just go through those three. The, the first, this principle is difficult, and I'll, I'll talk about it for a second, but Paul says the unrighteous, people who are not righteous, who live ungodly lives, that they will not go to heaven. They will not inherit eternal life. Um, and let me just explain this. Uh, as Christians, we believe that people, wherever they start, whether it's Adolf Hitler or the nice little old lady in your apartment complex, wherever they are, okay, people are saved by faith alone in Jesus, in the work, faith alone in the work of Jesus alone. If you're familiar with the, Revela- uh, the Reformation, that would be familiar to you. Faith alone, just embracing and trusting Jesus 
in the work of Jesus alone, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. But the faith that saves is never alone. Faith that saves always changes. Really trusting in the work of Christ, really embracing him, it transforms you. Not perfectly, not all at once, over a period of time with many struggles, but grace that saves, that embracing Jesus, it always brings God's power into your life to change you. I'm not saying that we're not going to sin. We're still going to sin. We're still going to struggle. I'm not saying we're not going to have patterns of sin. We'll still have patterns of sin. Okay, But we will not live in open, unrepentant sin with no remorse. Um, and that is what the scriptures teach and what Christians have believed for hundreds of years. Um, but there's something a little bit different in America. Uh, so, Sorry, I, I would say uh, the Reformation taught this truth, and they called it justification by faith, being declared righteous by God by faith. In America, uh, this is uh, D.A. Carson said, that in America we don't believe in justification by faith, we believe in justification by death. And now let me explain that. Um, this is a sad story, but I was at a, um, when I was a sophomore in college, a guy I went to high school with who, um, who was a drunkard and just unrighteous in a hundred ways, you know, whatever, uh, not a great guy, okay? Um, he tragically died in what was probably a drunk driving accident. I'll just say, that's horrible. I hate that. I don't like that. You know, that's terrible. Uh, but I went to his funeral, and the pastor spent an hour trying to convince us all that he was in heaven. And I just want to say that according to the scriptures, that man's lying. No, no, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know my friend's heart. Could he have been converted at the last minute? Of course he could have. I hope, I hope he was. All right? But there was no evidence of knowing Jesus in his life. There was no fruit. And the scriptures say that for people like that, we have no confidence that they're in heaven. The, the scriptures give this picture, okay? A good tree produces good fruit. So the idea here is that, that faith, if your life's a tree, okay, faith in Jesus are the roots going into the ground, all right? And those good roots will produce good fruits. They'll produce a changed life. And so the unrighteous will not go into the kingdom of heaven. Um, and Paul, uh, Paul helps us out with understanding how that works because we all sin, right? Does that mean that, you know, when I forget my quiet time or when I yell at somebody that I'm not going to heaven? I don't think so. Look, look at this list here. He has a list. Um, and we'll get more into this next week. But uh, he says... Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Notice, uh, in most of these descriptions, they are nouns, right? So it doesn't say people who commit adultery once, or people who do this a couple of times. It's a, the nouns. So say in the sense in the original language is that someone who does this is defined by this. There's a sense in which an adulterer, that's, that's what they do. An ad- idolater lives for their idols. It's, what, it's who they are. And so the idea here is that people whose lives um, can almost be defined by a particular sin that's not wept over or repented of or fought, those people will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And uh, that's a tough teaching, okay? Um, and Paul gives it to the Corinthians because at this present moment, they were acting this way. They were acting like the unrighteous. They were trying to defraud each other in court. So Paul gives them a real sharp warning. I'll just say the same thing to you, man. If you're, if you're living in a secret sin this morning, I just want you to know that unwept over, unrepented of, undealt with, unbrought to Christ, okay, that endangers your soul. And you need to repent this morning for, for your own sake.
Um, but then look at verse verse 11. This is one of my favorite verses in the scriptures. Um, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The word but, B-U-T, can be real powerful. So imagine this statement. Your entire family was in a terrible car accident, but they're all fine. A Category 5 hurricane was heading directly towards Charleston, but it shifted north. And didn't hit anybody, not just us, but not anybody, okay? Um, you got a 35 on an exam that will define your life, but the professor felt bad and curved it 50 points, right? Okay? It's, it's, that little word is a game changer, right? And so look at, look, look at if the passage ends at verse 10, okay? I don't really have any good news for you guys this morning, okay? Don't sin is all I have for you, okay? But look what it says. It says, you, but, okay, in Jesus you were washed and sanctified and justified because of the objective work of Christ 2,000 years ago. When, you, when someone embraces Jesus, this happens to you. It happens once and for all. So I'll just go through these three words real quick and then we'll close. Um, washed, all right? And the idea of this word is drenched in the Old Testament. And if you're a believer, I'd encourage you to read your whole Bible, to read the Old Testament, so you can understand things like this. But uh, if you've ever read Deuteronomy or Leviticus, you've probably noticed and been very frustrated by how obsessed the authors are with cleanness. You know, to be like, hey, if you sneeze wrong, that's not really in there, but if you sneeze wrong, okay, you are unclean, all right? And then you must wash and change your clothes, and then a day later you'll be clean. That's kind of how, there's like chapters of the Bible that are, that are focused on that. Um, and the idea, the idea of washed is being fit for the presence of God. The whole obsession in those Old Testament laws was how can people enter God's presence? How can they enter the temple, which in the Old Testament was where God's presence was located? How can they enter his presence? They had to be clean. Um, and the idea here is that for anyone who embraces the work of Jesus, who trusts him, they are once and for all washed. The filth is gone. The moral filth of their sin, the things that separate them, that make them unfit for God's presence, those are cleansed by the blood of Christ once and for all. Uh, and and to, at the risk of using a very uh, casual metaphor for something very significant, um, don't you feel great after a shower? You know, like after, you know, one day you have a busy work day, you forget to shower, you wake up pretty crusty, go through work the whole day, and you finally get home. It happens. Okay, it happens. All right. Whatever. We're all human here, okay? Uh, and you finally get home and shower, and for the next 50 minutes, you're just like, ah, you know, this feels wonderful. And I think there is an experiential aspect to being washed by Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, he wants you to experience this. Even if you don't feel like this, he wants you to look outside of yourself and see that even with your conscience pricking you over sins this week, that you are washed and cleansed that you're fit for God's presence because you're in Christ. Um, so the Corinthians, in spite of all their mess, they were washed. They were also sanctified. And we talked about this word a lot uh, a, few, a few weeks ago, um, but the word sanctified means set apart. And oftentimes when we talk about sanctification, we talk about we, what we mean is how holy I am right now, how righteous I am. And the sense of the word in this passage is not necessarily that. It's being made holy in the sense of being set apart from the world. So the, the idea here is that God, there's a, there's a mass of normal people, okay? 
all people in the world, okay? And if, when you're sanctified, God picks you out of them, and he puts you in his special group that's set apart for his purposes, all right? Um, it, it's the idea of being, being made holy in the sense of you are unique now among humanity. You, you are set apart for God's purposes. You are, you are headed for this destiny, right, of being a future judge and rule of the universe, of being conformed to the image of Christ. And so in, in spite of your sins and in spite of how unsanctified you look in your daily life, if you're in Christ, you are sanctified. God sets you apart, and your destiny is secure. And finally, uh, the Corinthians, in spite of all their junk, were justified. And to justify is to declare someone to be right. Um, some people have used the image of a judge declaring you innocent of a crime. Uh, that's not quite it. It's innocent. It's not just innocent. It's also righteous. So not just not having done anything wrong, but having done everything right. What the New Testament teaches is that believers, when they, when they look to Jesus and trust him, they come, become one with him, and God looks at them as if they were his perfect son, Jesus. He declares before the universe, and he treats Christians as if they were just as righteous as Christ. Um, and I just want to say, if you are processing this whole Christianity thing, if maybe you're just trying church out again after leaving in college and coming back or whatever it is, okay, um, this is available to you this morning. You can embrace Christ and have this. And if you're already a believer, I just want to encourage you to see yourself this way. You know, in spite, in spite of the guilt that you feel, in spite, in, spite of, in spite of the daily things you do that seem to betray this truth, you are fit for God's presence. You're cleansed in him. You're set apart for his purposes. You're declared right before him. Even if you don't feel that, look outside of yourself to what this passage <laughs> says. Start to define who you are outside of yourself in the scriptures. So we'll close with this. Uh, I don't know. Um, I go to the grocery store a lot, and every time I go to the grocery store, uh, I see magazines with the pictures of three and four years four-year-olds on them because everyone in America is obsessed with the royal family in Great Britain. Okay, we just we wish we had a king, right? So we could just dote over their, his children, right? Um, but uh, the world's obsessed with Prince George and Princess Charlotte. And I think there's a third one, maybe I don't know. Um, well, on the way. Okay, sorry. Yeah. I just want you to imagine, okay? I want you, I want you to imagine uh, the future king of England, okay? Prince George, all right, as a two-year-old, all right? The king, the future king, has dirty diapers, okay? And he throws temper tantrums, and he messes things up, and he doesn't sleep at night. He makes his mom crazy, all right? The future king of England does that kind of stuff. It makes no sense almost, right? It's, it's, it's hilarious. And I think there's this... Uh, this profound tension in the Christian life between who you actually are, who, what, what your life says about you and how you live and feel and act, and who you really are, what the scriptures say about you, what your destiny is, what you'll be like a million years from now, which will be a future judge and ruler of the universe, right? And, and I think you could sum up what 1 Corinthians, almost the whole book says, and what this passage says, um, and really what the scriptures say about growing, and that is live like who you really are. Take this up, this washed and sanctified and justified and this future destiny, okay? Take that up into how you live your life. 
behave as if this was you. Um, chew on this truth. Experience it. Feel the Lord doing this in your life. And then work it out in practical ways, whether that's unresolved conflict with your roommate that you've got to deal with, or whether it's repenting of a sin that's been in your life for years, all the messy stuff. Okay, Start with the gospel, chew on it, believe it of yourself, and then go live it out in practical ways. Die to your sin. Put it to death. And one day, you will find that the two realities are a lot closer than they were before. May God help you do that. Let's pray. Lord, uh, there's just a a lot of glorious things in this passage um, that you would do such a work in us that you would make us fit to be future rulers of the universe. You would, or that just blows our, it doesn't even seem conceivable. And yet the gospel does that. And that you would take evil, sinful people who've rebelled against you and make them right in your presence, make them fit for you, set them apart for your purposes. Lord, that is just a, that is a wonder and a glory. And so we, uh, we pray you just write that, those truths on our hearts. And we pray as you do that you'd help us to um, handle our conflicts wisely and just to live before you in purity. In Jesus' name, amen.